Genesis chapter 44, as we make our way through this book, considering the uh, generations of Jacob, which also obviously contains the story of Joseph, but is uh, really a story of two sons, Joseph and Judah. We see both of those sons uh, come to the fore in this passage today. Uh, I'd like to read the whole chapter for us, Genesis chapter 44, and the first three verses of 45 as well. So let us once again give ear to the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 44, beginning in verse 1. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did, as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing these things. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the, sacks of our, uh, in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from our Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Did you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak, or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you... Go go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me, that I may set eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down if our youngest brother goes with us. Then we will go, then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, 
And I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. Your servants will, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. And Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that, all, so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they, they were dismayed at his presence. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let us ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth and the power that it conveys. For indeed, it testifies to us concerning the person and work of your Son, Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would grant to us ears to hear and eyes to see, faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, and also hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved Lord, this is the second visit that Joseph has received from his brothers coming down, uh, coming down from Canaan in order to buy grain in the land of Egypt. You may recall the first time that they came to Egypt to buy grain, Joseph immediately recognized them. And yet, of course, they did not recognize him. And so he used that knowledge to his advantage as he instituted a series of tests to see if his brothers, those brothers that some 20 years before had betrayed him, had plotted to kill him and ultimately sold him as a slave in Egypt, to see if they had changed, if they would show remorse, and if, uh, if they would show forth the fruits of repentance. The first test he instituted was that he kept Simeon uh, one of their brothers in custody and replaced the money that they had used to buy the grain back in their sacks. And so the first test was to see if they would take the money and run and leave Simeon high and dry just as they had sold him in slavery in order to make a profit. Well, of course, they passed that first test as they returned, even though it made them look like they were thieves, they returned in order to regain their brother Simeon. And the second test was to bring down Benjamin, Joseph's full brother, the only other son of Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife, to see if they would bring their youngest brother down so that Joseph can show blatant favoritism to him. And he did just that, as he had them come, not as, uh, not as accused spies, but as honored guests this second visit. They sat at his table, and they were able to eat and drink freely with him, and yet Joseph, in showing blatant favoritism to Benjamin, 
wanted to see if he could arouse this same emotions of jealousy that had caused such hatred some 20 years before. Well, the brothers passed that test as well. As we see that even though Benjamin's portion was five times as much as his brother's, they could care less. They showed no jealousy towards him. Well, now in this third and final test, uh, uh, and uh, B- Joseph is going to institute with his brothers. He's going to put the final test to them to see if they had in fact, uh, if they had in fact uh, changed their ways. And at this point, the next morning, having been honored guests of Joseph, they had eaten and drank freely. And the next morning, they were prepared to return back to the land of Canaan, having gotten Simeon, their brother, having bought the grain that they needed to survive for the famine, and keeping Benjamin in their custody. No doubt at this point, the brothers are feeling pretty good about themselves. They're probably congratulating themselves for how smoothly this trip had gone. But we find out beginning of our passage today that that Joseph had something up his sleeve. He had, as I said, one more test that he wanted to put his brothers to as he commanded his servants to fill his brother's sacks with grain as much as they could hold. And like last time, to return the money that they had used to bought the grain in the mouth of the sack. But this time, he tells his servant to take his cup, his royal cup, the silver one, that perhaps they had drinking out of the day before at the feast, to place that sack, to plant it in the youngest brother's sack, in Benjamin's sack. You see, the final phase of this test, Joseph will give his brothers an opportunity to be rid of the sons of Rachel altogether. The, the, the youngest son that their father doted upon that that he showed blatant favoritism to this is the final test to see if they would be able to if they would take the opportunity to get rid of benjamin as well Well, only having gone a short distance from the city joseph sends his steward after them to intercept them and to bring official charges against them charges of theft of this silver cup And he comes up, and the the words that he's instructed to say is, why have you repaid evil for good? You see, Joseph had treated them as honored guests, and yet now they're being accused of stealing his valuable cup. Of course, they didn't actually do this, but ironically, the evil that they did do some 22 years before, God is actually turning to good. And as the, as the steward is supposed to say to them, do you not know that it is from this cup that my master drinks as well as practices divination? Here he's referencing a practice that was common throughout the ancient world where they would, uh, people would mix together wine and some other uh, liquid like water or perhaps oil and that they would, they would try to interpret the surface patterns in order to foretell the future. Of course, of course, all such practices of divination are, extri- are strictly forbidden by the law of God. And it is highly unlikely that Joseph actually did practice divination. So, of course, this is all part of the ruse. This is part of the story that Joseph is telling them uh, in order to put the test to them. We know that Joseph, on previous occasions, would attribute all special revelation to God alone. Even as he stood before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, I hear that you can interpret dreams. 
to which Joseph said, it is God alone that belongs interpretation. And ironically, when Judah returns with his brothers in verse 16, he doesn't say, you have found us out through divination, but rather, God has found out. And so clearly here, this, uh, this idea of, of Joseph practicing divination is just part of the story in the same way uh, that, that he accused them as being spies or any other sort of uh, part of the story. It's, it's all part of the ruse. And so when Joseph's brothers hear the charges, they strongly deny them. They cite their previous behavior in that uh, they returned the money from the first trip. Why on earth would they do such a thing? And they are so confident in their innocence that they make a rash assertion that anyone who is found with this cup shall surely die. And the rest of the brothers will be slaves, will become Joseph's slaves for the rest of their life. Now, this might remind you of something, another time in which somebody was looking for a particular item that had been stolen. In fact, an episode that most of these brothers, at least everyone except for Benjamin, was involved in in their childhood. Of course, I'm referencing what we read of in chapter 31, when Jacob was fleeing from his uncle Laban, and we are told that Rachel had stolen the household gods. And Laban comes upon them, catches up with them, and he says, Why have you stolen my household gods? Well, of course, Jacob had no idea that his beloved wife had taken the household gods, and so confident of, of his innocence that he says, Whoever is found with the household gods shall surely die. So here we have history repeating itself, a very similar situation where they are confident in, in their innocence, and yet unbeknownst to them, they pronounce the death sentence upon the very one that they, uh, that they want to preserve uh, his life. And so the steward accepts their, uh, their declaration, and yet, of course, he modifies it. Notice he says, let it be as you have said, except he completely changes what they say. No longer is he talking about the death sentence. He says, only the one who is found with the cup will be kept as a slave, but the rest will be innocent, free to go. And so the men, confident of their innocence, quickly lower their sacks to the ground to be searched. And, and in the same way that Laban, when he was searching for the household gods, began with his oldest daughter, Leah, and ended with his youngest daughter, Rachel. So here, the servant begins with the oldest and makes his way through every man's sack all the way down to the youngest. Of course, this is building suspense. And finally, when he comes to Benjamin's sack, reaching his hand in there, tearing through the grain, he brings out the silver cup, to which the brothers all stand and look at each other, and they tear their clothes. It's interesting that when it was reported that Joseph had gone missing, when the brothers brought his coat of many colors that was stained, it was ripped, torn, and stained with blood, only Jacob tore his clothes at that point, while the rest of the brothers stood around in guilty silence. But now we see each and every brother express profound sorrow as they all tear their clothes. It's interesting, we, we don't even hear a single word that they say, they just all tear their clothes. And in their actions speaking louder than w words, we read that every man loaded up his donkey and returned to the city. 
This is key because remember the steward said that the rest of them would be free to go. They would be completely innocent and they could head on back to the land of Canaan with their grain and with Simeon in tow. And yet here we see all the brothers act in solidarity by returning with Benjamin to face the judge. And as they make their way back to the city, as they approach Joseph's house uh, uh, to, face, uh, to face the accuser, we read in verse 14 that it's Judah and his brothers who are making their way back. It's interesting that Judah is singled out here because he, again, is the one who assumed responsibility. Again, it was, it was him, it was, it was his persuasive speech that convinced their father Jacob to let Benjamin go with them in the first place. As he says, I will personally vouch. I will be a pledge of security for my brother. I will personally return him to you. And so here Judah, again, is, respo- uh, is assuming the responsibility. He's going to be the, the main spokesperson as they approach Joseph. As they all fell before him. This is a different Hebrew word than what we read of before when we read that they bowed before him. Here we we read literally that they just fall before him. They are completely desperate as they literally throw themselves at Joseph's mercy. Joseph, of course, stays in character. He keeps on his his Egyptian mask, as it were, uh, perhaps even still at this point, using an interpreter, as we read that he did in the chapter before. And so Judah comes to make his speech. He speaks up and confesses that ultimately they have no defense. He says, what shall we say? How can we clear ourselves? Circumstantial evidence is glaring. There is no denying the fact that the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. They literally were caught red-handed. But it's interesting what Judah says. is He says that God has found out the guilt of your servants. Now, it may seem here at first glance that Judah is confessing to something, he's confessing to a crime that they actually didn't commit. This was a planted, a planted evidence. They didn't actually steal the cup. And yet we know what Judah is really confessing to. We know, and Joseph knows, and, and Judah and the rest of his brothers know, perhaps not Benjamin, but the rest of them know what, Judah, what guilt Judah is talking about here. This is the same uh, sense of remorse that they had already expressed back in chapter 42. When the, when the brother said, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. See, ever since that first visit, when things started going wrong, when Joseph started instituting these tests upon their brothers and they were experiencing distress, they realized this is because of what we have done. And they were showing remorse for the, the, the sinful actions that they had committed against their brother some 22 years before. Well, here now Judah, for the first time, confesses directly to Joseph. We are guilty. We are guilty for what we have done. And so in response, Judah offers for all of the brothers to be slaves. Notice he wisely omits what they had said before, that the one who is found with the cup should die. Now he is suggesting, let us all be your slaves. In solidarity with their youngest brother, Benjamin, uh, he says, we will all remain in custody. To which Joseph says, far be it from me. He makes it very clear that only the guilty party should be punished. The rest will be free to go. 
Here again is their opportunity. Will they be rid of the son of Rachel? Will, be, will they finally be able to get rid of this favoritism that has divided their family for, for, for decades? Or will they remain in solidarity with their brother? And drawing even closer to Joseph, Judah boldly approaches Joseph's throne. And he begins an impassioned speech, which commentators say is one of the most remarkable displays of a changed heart in all of Scripture. Perhaps rivaled only by the parable of our Lord that he taught concerning the prodigal son. Well, here we see Judah make this impassioned speech in defense of his brother. And what he does is he point by point changes what he had done on previous occasions. So Judah begins in verse 19 by recounting their previous encounter. He, he, he starts from the beginning. He starts telling the story as we have seen it. Of course, omitting some special things like the charge that Joseph had brought against them about being spies. He omits the fact that they were all confined or that Simeon was confined for a lengthy time. He, uh, he doesn't mention the threat of death that Joseph put over them. And so he leaves out some of the more uh, sordid details. But he gives a quick recap of what had brought them up until this point, beginning with their first encounter. One thing he mentions specifically about Joseph is that his brother, referring to Joseph, is dead. Previously, when they referenced Joseph, they simply said, one brother is no more using sort of vague language, language, but now Judah is clearly confessing to what he believes to be the case, that in fact Joseph is dead and it is his fault. Of course, he's confessing this to Joseph himself, who is alive and well. You've got to appreciate the irony. But then he brings up his father. He speaks of Jacob's close attachment to Benjamin, the fact that Benjamin is the only surviving son of his beloved wife. And he uses this fact, the, the, the connection that, that, that Jacob has with Benjamin, the fact that his soul is tied up with the boy, he uses this as his emotional hook that he repeats time and time again. You can go back and count how many times he references his father and, and the demise that would come upon him if he were to lose yet another son. Clearly, in this, in this speech, we see that Judah has come to terms with the fact that his father will not change. His father, who had shown favoritism to Rachel, and then to Joseph, and now to Benjamin, Judah is recognizing his fact that this is just something that his father is going to do, and he's going to have to come to terms with it. And it seems as if he has. He's willing to accept his status, that he is not his father's beloved son. He's even able to quote his father sympathetically in verse 27 when he says, My wife bore me two sons. Of course, omitting the fact that he had another wife, Leah, and ten other sons, including Judah himself. It's, it's amazing to see how this favoritism which divided the family, which created so much jealousy and anger and hatred in the hearts of Joseph's brothers, all of that has seemed to have gone away in that they accept the fact that their father is just going to do this, and they, are at they have come to peace with those terms. He mentions 
And Joseph hears with his own ears for the first time the story, the false explanation that his brothers used for his, to their, his father for his disappearance. When, when, uh, in quoting Jacob's words, he says, my son has been torn to pieces. And so here for the first time, Joseph hears the, the story that they had told to fool their fault, to deceive their father. But then again, Judah, assuming full responsibility in verse 30, notice he says, if I, as soon as I, your servant, come to my father and the boy is not with us, he will surely die. Here again, Judah is assuming a responsibility as the leader of the brothers, is the one who said that he would take care of him. See, the shock of Benjamin's absence will most certainly end Jacob's life. Returning without Benjamin is not an option. You see, some 22 years prior, Judah had returned Joseph's bloodied coat to his father and asked him to identify it. And he had to stand there with the rest of his brothers and see the pain on his father's face. The fact that his father tore his clothes and refused to be comforted for the death of his son. He had to stand and he had to watch that. And here we see a changed man saying, I'm not going to do that again. I will not inflict such pain upon my father again. I refuse to let it happen. Joseph has heard a lot in this speech. He's learned a lot about his brothers, about the past. And yet, I don't think anything could have prepared him to hear what he's about to hear. As Judah goes on to say, your servant became a pledge for the boy. You see, the same brother who callously sat down to eat over the screams of Joseph in the pit, the same brother who whose cold and calculated suggestion it was to sell him as a slave in Egypt in order to get rid of him and make a profit, is now saying that he promised his father that he would serve as a surety for Benjamin. The one who sold Joseph as a slave is now willing to become a slave in order for Benjamin to be free. Judah was offering himself as a substitute for his brother, sacrificing his own life, so that his brother could live and return to his father. And then he closes this impassioned speech by saying, I fear to see the evil. You see, Judah cannot bear seeing grief upon his father, so he's willing to become a lifelong servant in Egypt so that his father can see his beloved son again. Well, it's at this point that Joseph has heard enough. Seeing such a display of brotherly love is more than he could bear. On two previous occasions when he interacted with his brothers, especially after he had heard them express remorse for the first time, and then also uh, upon laying eyes upon his full brother Benjamin for the first time, on those two occasions, Joseph quickly had to excuse himself so that he could go and weep in his private chambers. He was so overcome by emotion. Well, here, Joseph is so overcome with emotion, and yet he's not able to make it to his private chambers. He completely loses it and breaks into tears. He He cries out for everyone else, all of his servants, all of the people in his court, to excuse themselves, to leave him alone with his brothers as he makes himself known to them. And the only words he can get out to his brothers is, 
I am Joseph. I am Joseph. Speaking to his brothers, perhaps for the first time directly, keep in mind he had been using an interpreter up until this point, and yet now he begins crying, and now he looks at his brothers directly and speaking to them in the Hebrew language. He says, I am Joseph. And yet he might as well have been speaking Russian as far as they were concerned because they were so shocked that they couldn't even process what he said. That's why he has to repeat it again, as we'll see next week. He has to repeat it time and time again. I'm Joseph, the one you sold into slavery. That one, that Joseph. And yet here, he re- and, and, and clearly even, even Joseph is overcome with the emotions. And the next, thing, next words out of his mouth is, is my father still alive? Clearly, he too is overcome with emotion. This doesn't even make sense in light of what Judah has just said, talking about the, fa- the fact that their father is still alive. And yet perhaps about perhaps after hearing just how difficult this process has been for his father. Remember, keep in mind, this has been a test for Jacob, too, to see if he would trust the Lord, giving his son to his brothers. Uh, after learning how difficult this process has been, that it has brought him to the very verge of death, we see his primary concern is for his well-being. And that's immediately where his mind turns, where he thinks, I want to see my father again in fulfillment of that second dream that he had had, that his father, in addition to his brothers, were bowing down to him. Well, after revealing himself to his brothers, after saying, I am Joseph, after uh, the shock began to wear off, and they began to process what he had just said, as they began to realize this is the one that we had sold into slavery some 22 years before. The very one who controlled their fate is, now, is the very one that they had ambushed and sold. We read that they couldn't say anything because they were dismayed. That's kind of a light translation. I think perhaps a better translation would be they were terrified. They were completely terrified. Why? Because they feared the judgment. They feared what would come. They were cut to the heart because the very one that they had offended is the one that hold their lives in his hands. Of course, as we'll see next week, they would have nothing to fear because Joseph immediately assures them of the fact that he had forgiven them, that he had forgiven them, that although they meant it for evil, God had meant it for good, and Joseph was able to come to terms with that. That reminds me of another time in which men were cut to the heart when they found out the one who controlled all things was the very one that they had sinned against. Of course, I'm referring to what Peter says to the men who are gathered in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. After his sermon, the very end of his sermon, Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. To which the men, we read, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? To which Peter replies, repent. Repent and be baptized. And ultimately, that's what I think Joseph has seen in his brothers. That's why he is so easily able to say, I forgive you. You do not need to be afraid. Why? Because he has seen the repentance in his brother's life. Ultimately, that is true of each and every one of us as 
uh, it is because of our sin that we sent Jesus to the cross. Even when we were enemies of his, he gave his life for us, to which we ought to reply with repentance and faith. As we conclude our passage today, we see a tale of two brothers. Both brothers, Joseph and Judah, coming to the fore, being the stars, as it were, in this passage. And what we see here is that both of them serve as a type of Christ, but in different ways. Joseph was the innocent one who suffered at the hands of his brothers in order to then be exalted, who freely forgives and receives his brothers who show repentance. But then Judah, the one who had changed so much, Judah is the one who offers himself as a substitute for his brother who had been caught red-handed, who was guilty so that his brother may live. You see, both of these types are fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ, who freely gave himself up for us, who became a curse for us, even when we were his enemies, who served as our substitute. The, the one who knew no sin became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And he is also the one who freely offers forgiveness to any who would come to him by faith, who would repent and believe and receive life. Well, praise God for the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, for the substitute that he has sent, for the one who has been exalted, and the one who continues to rule and reign us by his Holy Spirit. Amen? Let's give thanks. Thanks.